Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I sort of can't believe we haven't done this show before because I've actually spent probably a disproportionate amount of my life thinking about eggs to say nothing of cooking and eating them and being personally introduced to certain chickens. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, eggs are like really important and really interesting to me and we've never done an entire show about them. I think the problem is that nobody had ever written what we call in the shop here a Mark Kurlansky book about eggs. Now, it turns out a person named Lizzie Stark wrote the Mark Kurlansky book about eggs, but it's the kind of book that pulls together a lot of different aspects, biology, science, aesthetics, art, culture, human relations. It's all there. And of course, it's all there in the egg, too. That's the whole idea. All right. So we'll be talking about eggs in lots of different styles and flavorings right after whatever comes next, right after I stop talking. All right, so we are actually not going to ponder that question here today, although we could very quickly answer it. And the reason is because our primary guest here on the show, it's a show about eggs, by the way, if I haven't already made that clear, has been asked that question too many times. Lizzie Stark is a play expert and the author of two nonfiction books, including Pandora's DNA uh, and uh, Leaving a Mundania, 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 I think. And then her new book. Her new book is Egg, A Dozen Overtures. You see what she did there? Uh, and she's with us right now. Before I bring her in, I will just quickly say, I'll say it to you, Lizzie. So in the Broadway play, The Silver Whistle, uh, we encounter a tramp named Emmett. And he's seen, I think, sitting on a wall, pondering an egg. And he says, an egg has no sides. I find that reassuring. Every part of an egg is curved. It's nice to know that there's something you can depend on. Um, I will now uh, say that I'll now identify myself as a Nepo baby. Uh, my father, Bob McEnroe, wrote, those li- that wrote that line. So our family, we've been thinking about eggs a lot for a long time. Very excited about this book. So Lizzie Stark, this book is about so many different things. Really, it's about the tech and architecture of an egg. It's about uh, the eggs that we eat that we'll be talking about a lot in the second segment. Uh, but it's also you sort of try to get into the soul of an egg, right? Yeah, that's right, Colin. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited uh, <laughs> to talk about what's under the shell and around the shell today. Yeah, in my book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures, I try to look at an egg from 12 different angles. So I look at it as an object of play, as a myth and story, um, its role in space exploration, in vaccines, and so much more. 
Yes, and we will talk about the space exploration angle towards the end of this uh, segment because I'm excited about it. I'm excited about anything that isn't an astronaut and goes into space. Um, but we'll begin just sort of by the way we kind of, I mean, eggs are so much a part of, of our culture, uh, mostly the eating of them, but also, of course, the whole reproduction element itself. Uh, I'm going to play a little scene for you from one of my favorite music movies. Uh, it's uh, Frankie and Johnny. You're going to hear Al Pacino as a short order cook trying to impress an unimpressed waitress named Frankie. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, A1 cat. I need scramble with bacon, two easy overs with sausage, and a Belgian waffle. I'm Johnny. Hi. Who um, are you? Frankie. These eggs don't look runny. Mr. DeLeon likes them runny. They look runny to me. They're pretty runny. He's a regular. Who can argue with that? And who can argue with you? Thy head is full of quarrel. Like an egg is full of meat. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. I'm reading it now. Act three, scene one. I can't find it now. Okay. Raw eggs coming up. Not raw. Runny. So, Lizzie, there's a lot contained in there, including a Shakespeare quote. But there's also that kind of idea. There's a way in which, you know, uh, the, the exterior of an egg really does suggest per, uh, perfection. Um, and the inside of an egg, even though you go into quite a bit of detail about the really kind of perfect architecture, the tech, as you call it, of an egg. But I think to our minds, there's chaos, right? There's just stuff that's going to come gushing out all over the place. A runny egg makes people nervous. Yes, a runny egg can make people nervous. I mean, one thing I discovered writing this book is that everybody has their own very exact way about how the perfect egg And for me, the perfect egg is a little bit runny. But uh, going back to that theme of chaos, I think there is something about eggs that just uh, invites the idea of chaos. And of course, you can see this in the egg myths from around the world, where the egg represents a kind of generative chaos that then the world is created out of. Um, but you can also see it in, say, a Halloween egging incident, right? There's something about eggs that um, one of the affordances of eggs is that they want to be broken or that they could be broken and create a chaos, a delightfully chaotic mess. Right. And we are actually in the final segment. Lizzie will have gone on to greater things by that time. But we are actually going to have a pretty a lengthy conversation with the philosopher John Portman about that idea of throwing eggs on Halloween and other less sublime occasions. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit, uh, I mean, we, we're going to talk a lot about eating the interior of an egg, but there's stuff about the shell in your book that I just found mind-blowing. I don't think we should, we don't have a lot of time. I don't think we should walk you through the entire egg as tech thing that you do in the book. People should buy the book and read it for that. But this, the, I thought the most mind-blowing thing that I encountered was this idea that the same chicken could lay one egg in, let's say, Baton Rouge and another egg in D Denver, and the shells would be significantly different in composition. Explain why that is. Yes. So eggshells contain pores that allow gas exchange to happen. So when the chick is developing microbial water, the water all living things give off can evaporate and oxygen can come in. And a hen can somehow detect the oxygen concentration in the air. So there are more pores on the blunt side of the egg than there are on the pointy side, because the blunt side is where the um, chick's head develops. And if you take a chicken from Baton Rouge and move it to Colorado, 
on top of a mountain in the thinner air, that chicken's going to lay an egg with more pores for uh, for gas exchange to happen to compensate for the um, lower concentration of oxygen in the air. But that's like a chicken has some kind of mysterious internal barometer or something. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think we quite understand um, how that works. Chickens can also uh, like delay the um, can delay laying eggs or birds can delay laying eggs, uh, depending on what the weather is like so that they can time their reproductive cycle like optimally for the season. There are a lot of mysterious things about um, uh, about egg laying that we just haven't quite figured out yet. And that's one of them. And maybe we're not meant to know. Um, I mean, chickens have to have some secrets. So um, we should also, one of the other things that I loved was this whole thing about the role that ostrich eggs played in Stone Age development, um, that it actually sort of made it possible for Stone Age people to roam out into the desert. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So going back uh, about 60,000 years, archaeologists have found ostrich eggshell fragments in the desert. And ostriches are uh, are real scary birds. Uh, they deliver kicks that could kill a lion. Um, but if you get an ostrich egg away from the communal nest, it's it uh, can hold about a liter of water. And you can cut out a, a little hole uh, in the top of the egg and stop it up with grass or beeswax. And it functions as a perfect water canteen, holds a goodly portion of water, one liter, and the pores in the eggshell help keep the water a bit cool. And so these eggshell canteens enabled the desert exploration by um, Stone Age peoples and you know, much like we might slap a bumper sticker on our car or on our water bottle, the Stone Age people decorated their ostrich eggshell canteens, and archaeologists have found fragments of these egg de decorations. And it's um, archaeologists say it's some of the oldest evidence for abstract thought in humans, which kind of blew my mind. And then the eggshells are quite thick and robust, and they were ground down into these tiny beads. And so people would wear bracelets made of ostrich eggshell beads. And the curious thing is that not all of the beads were from the same eggshell. There's evidence that people exchanged these beads across networks spanning hundreds of miles, you know, which was no small thing in, uh, in the Stone Age. So... Eggs truly are at the beginning of it all. Right. And so there's a way in which I think we have a fascination with eggs that's probably also a, a kind of adaptive in an evolutionary way. I'm always telling people anyway that an egg kind of contains everything that it's going to take to make a chicken or a robin or an ostrich or whatever it's going to turn into. Uh, that's the plan. That's the egg's plan. <laughs> the egg's plan is not to be an omelet. Uh, the egg's plan is, nope, let's make another one of us. Um, and and I, maybe for that reason, the sort of the nutritional completeness of, of an egg, people get pretty fired up if they can't have them so you you actually document kind of what are thought of as the egg wars of the Farallon Islands. I think that's worth spending a couple of minutes talking about. Sure, yes. So in Gold Rush era San Francisco, there were shortages of a lot of things. The population of San Francisco exploded, and city infrastructure and the food, the infrastructure of food um, of farming couldn't keep up, and so people were starved for eggs. They were incredibly expensive, 
in the city of San Francisco, a fresh chicken egg might fetch a dollar per egg. Uh, and that's in 1848 money. Well, out in the gold fields, prices were up to $3 per egg. So you could make a lot of money from eggs. Right. Well, and- I just want to pause you and say, not just, so we're talking $400 to $1,200 per dozen in 2023 money terms, probably somewhere exactly. in there. Exactly. Yes. Somewhere in there. So I mean, hugely expensive. And so uh, so there was an enterprising pharmacist who figured out that there are these um, really inhospitable islands off the coast of San Francisco. They're just like jagged rocks sticking up from these shark-infested waters, and they were famous for causing a bunch of shipwrecks. Anyway, on these islands, there were hundreds of thousands of seabirds. And so Doc Robinson and his brother-in-law took a boat over. They gathered the eggs of the common muir, which is a seabird that um, is black and white, and it lays eggs bigger than a chicken egg. And they lost half of their um, they lost half of their cargo on the sea on the way back, but they still managed to sell it for what would amount to about a hundred thousand dollars today. <laughs> And the trip was so terrifying for them that they vowed never to return. But word got out. And within a few days, there were uh, armed gangs setting up egg gathering operations on the island and decades of uh, armed struggle between the rival gangs and later between the gangs and the uh, the men who worked on the lighthouse, which was eventually built on the Farallon Islands, ensued. And so you get all of these amazing, um, amazing news articles, like about um, the guys who hid in Great Muir Cave during a shootout where uh, the the ammonia fumes from the guano like killed a couple people, um, you know, lighthouse keepers being uh, hijacked and kidnapped by gangs of eggers who were trying to gain access to the island some of the lighthouse keepers were on the on the uh taking bribes from various egg companies to allow them to lease the egg rights my favorite thing this is sort of disturbing all of this is disturbing actually uh, but um so there was this idea that the the eggs from this seabird and i think like two and a half times the size of the size of a chicken mm-hmm. egg but they if you didn't get a completely fresh one you would wind up with a fishy taste in your mouth i guess because those birds eat fish that wouldn't go away for months or something so there was this mania not just for the eggs but for getting fresh ones and didn't two guys like go and like smash all of the eggs that were there so that they would and then sleep on the island so that they would know that the next day they were finding only fresh eggs or something like that yeah absolutely the egg guys were out there with their workers and they had divided the island into during egging season into different parts and so they'd go to the place they'd be harvesting tomorrow and they smashed all of the eggs and common mirrors, you know, they only lay one clutch of eggs per year. And this had pre- predictably devastating effects on the local bird population. But, uh, you know, the city of San Francisco got its eggs, which were perfectly acceptable in um, baked goods. 
So I listened to some of the show that you did on KQED where you took calls, and it became clear nobody's going to stump Lizzie Stark about eggs. There's just like, you know, nobody can throw anything at you that you can't catch. Um, although I'm going to tell you one thing that I bet you don't know. Okay. Uh, and I, partly because you think the topic itself is boring, and that is in the movie Risky Business, the Tom Cruise movie Risky Business, uh, the end of the movie, there's the denouement involves this Fabergé egg that his mother prizes so much, and he's about to go off to college. They've been away, you may recall. He's deflowered by a, a sex worker while that happens. Lots of other things happens. And when she returns, they've restored the house to its former order uh, after having running a brothel out of the house and stuff like that. And these parents look around and they are obviously reassured. And then she picks up the Fabergé egg and she says, there's Joel, there's a crack. There's a little crack inside this egg that wasn't there before. And I didn't notice at the time, but it's really kind of a... You know, I think it's sort of a comment on the fact that her son is about to go away to college. She doesn't know that he's just lost his virginity, too. But there's sort of a sense of that kind of loss of innocence. That's not what's interesting. What's interesting is there are a lot of people who've tried to find that particular Fabergé egg. And there are Reddit discussions. <laughs> of course, there are Reddit discussions about what egg that actually is and how much it costs and everything, uh, which I found kind of fabulous. But I also know you don't like Fabergé eggs very much, nor do I. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I, uh, Fabergé eggs, they're just a fancy rich guy's way of doing the local folk art of pasanki, which was like a Ukrainian method for dyeing uh, Easter eggs, writing on Easter eggs with all of this intricate symbolism. And yeah, I just find that more uh, more interesting. It's there's all of these um, these uh, magical angles to it. People would put the pasanki out to keep evil spirits away. They'd bury it in the field, bury these eggs in the fields to ensure a good harvest. You know, the um, the cattle got their own eggs to help ensure a good year. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah. of fascinating but I've never folklore. seen risky business. All right. So. Well, when you see it, you realize that his parents, <laughs> unlike yeah. Stone Age uh, people in Australia, are not capable of abstract, thing abstract thinking. So, um <laughs> That's why they're so excited about their Fabergé egg. All right. So we have a little bit of time le left in this segment. I do want to talk about eggs in space. One thing you probably were not told by producer Betsy Kaplan is that we have the only people who are not allowed on this show are astronauts. So I'm always fascinated when anything else goes into space. So explain explain what's going on with that, because I was completely unaware of this this whole line of discussion. Sure. So we've been sending eggs up into space for, uh, you know, ever since the earliest um, balloon experiments. And we sent them up to space as proxy for the human body. People didn't know whether cosmic rays would kill us or not. So they sent up the next best thing, an egg, figuring that if it, it killed the egg, it would probably kill people too. Um, but cosmic eggs, uh, cosmic rays did not kill the egg. And so we went on to send people up into space. And since then, um, Chickens in Space has been a, a an effort of um, uh, of food, right? Astronauts need to eat in space, so we've had freeze dried eggs going into space forever and ever. And um, there's a long astronaut tradition of eating something that doesn't um, force you to uh, use the bathroom for quite a while. And so there's like a launch day tradition of eating steak and eggs. Um, and then uh, eggs in sending actual shelled eggs into space has been kind of another experiment in uh, what happens to the what happens to the body in space, what happens perhaps to the female body in space. 
Um, so these two guys, John Vellinger and Mark Ducer, uh, John Vellinger was a really enterprising junior high, high school and college student. He won this um, countrywide NASA uh, science, uh, science competition to send uh, eggs in an incubator up into space because he had noticed that at home, his hens rotated uh, their eggs once a day to prevent gravity from working on the yolks. So he thought, you know, I wonder what happens to eggs when gravity is not working on the yolks. So they sent eggs up into space, uh, embryos that were two days old, as well as embryos that were nine days old, and brought them back down to Earth. And what they found was that none of the two-day-old embryos had survived, that the effect of gravity on a developing embryo is important. Um, but the nine-day embryos, which were a bit long, longer in their development before they were sent up into space, many of them survived. And many of them were hatched. And that is how the Louisville Museum got its uh, got Kentucky, the first space chicken. Uh, I guess I forgot to mention that um, uh, John Vellinger, when he won this NASA science competition, had gotten hooked up with a corporate sponsor. And the natural corporate sponsor was Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I think um, I think. The eggs in space experiments bode um, bode poorly both for space sex and space birth was kind of my reading of it. Um, but uh, I do hope that I'm wrong about that and that we can look forward to uh, many years of um, both having babies in space and uh, eating eggs in space. All right. Well, speak for yourself. Um, but uh, had we but world in time, I would ta- tell you about the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, which was held in 1946 oh. and 1947. Well, mm-hmm. You talk like you already know about that, given the noise that you just made. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of relatives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who yeah. were uh, uh, professors of like apple growing at right. the time that um, that competition was run. The winner actually is not too far from where I'm sitting right now, Arbor Acres. Anyway, we can't talk about that because we have to take yes. a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk with Lizzie and our good friend, Chris Prosperi, about eating and therefore cooking eggs. Nighthawks at the diner, Hammer's 49er. There's a rendezvous of strangers around a coffee and a night. All the gypsy hacks and the insomniacs, now the paper's been read. Now the waitress said, eggs and sausages and side of toast, coffee and a roll, hash browns or Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Oh, I frequently think every now and then of the glorious fruit of the noble hen. Eggs! Eggs! E-double-G-S eggs! My knowledge of eggs is tremendously wide. I've eaten them boiled, I've eaten them fried. Poached and shirred and deviled and scrambled. Hommelet, schmommelet, scottled and frambled. We play more Alan Sherman songs than any radio show in America. I guarantee you that. I'm not sure that's an article of pride, but it's true. So Lizzie Stark is with us. She's written an amazing book called Eggs, A Dozen Overtures. Uh, joining her and me now is my old friend Chris Prosperi, uh, the chief, uh, the chef and co-owner of Metro Peace <laughs> Restaurant, uh, and the chief also uh, in Simsbury and a former recipe columnist for the Hartford Current. Lots of other things besides. And so um, I, I think we should just begin by saying that Cooking eggs is really complicated because of something Lizzie and I kind of referenced at the beginning. People, one one person's egg treasure is another person's egg poison. People are very particular about how they um, they like it. Uh, our senior producer Lily Tyson, of course, wrote the hit YA novel Five Ways I Won't Eat Eggs, which is being made into a motion picture, uh, starring I think the girl from The Power. Uh, but uh, we're going to play um, another little movie clip for you. Uh, this one I think you will rep- uh, recognize from Runaway Bride. Uh, so let's hear Richard Gere talking to Julia Roberts. This is a B1 Cat. You were so lost you didn't even know what kind of eggs you like. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. With a priest, you wanted scrambled. With with a deadhead, it was fried. With the other guy, the bug guy, it was it was poached. Now it's like, oh, uh, uh, egg whites only. Thank you very much. That is called changing your mind. No, that's called not having a mind of your own. Maggie, what are you doing? So, Lizzie, very, your book is very much about the culture of cooking eggs. There's a, some very touching stuff about you and your father uh, trying to perfect or at least master uh, about 20 different uh, egg recipes. There's that whole idea of, particularly with an egg, there's something like, this is very simple, but can I do it? Yeah, exactly. An egg is extremely sensitive. And so you can get very different results by changing certain variables, like very minutely. You know, a millimeter on that stove dial might result in a, into my mind, very inedible round egg. And doing it too slow might result in a white that's so tender you're struggling to get the fried egg off of the pan. And that's the game of eggs. Almost any egg is edible. Almost any egg is going to meet somebody's uh, palate requirements. <laughs> but uh, to get an egg truly perfect for yourself and to be able to do that reliably, it's um, it's it's a it's a difficult mountain to climb, and therefore it's interesting to climb, in my opinion. All right. So, Chris, and I should say, just cards on the table. Chris and I, in the past, have been known. To if one of us is in the presence of duck eggs, we often will would buy duck eggs for the other person too. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a smoothie this morning, which means <laughs> I could make eggs for dinner. And and that's mm-hmm. I know one of your things, Chris, is that eggs yeah. are not just for breakfast. Yeah, eggs are for all times. And back to what Lizzie was saying, the egg omelet and the scrambled egg is probably one of the easiest yet hardest things to cook. I think anyway, I've been doing it now for 40 years since I was a little boy cooking eggs at home with my mom. And 
I think I came close to the perfect omelet a few times, but I've never quite got it because it's that moment in time. And like Lizzie said, the temperature has to be right. What, how cold were the eggs when they went in the pan? How warm were the eggs? It, it, there's so many variables going, and they're so delicate to cook that it is, I think, a lifetime pursuit to cook the perfect egg. Yeah, I actually make very good, if I may say so, scrambled eggs. I, I mm-hmm. think that most of the women I have spent time with in my life don't miss a lot of things about me, but I think occasionally they think about me and they think, you know, you really did make good scrambled eggs, and yeah. and, and that's a thing. So I, I guess I would ask both of you if you wanted to mention like some a little slightly more obscure egg. Does either one of you know about ova in purgatorio? No. Oh, I'll I'll tell you about that later. All I right. Hear, I want to hear your ones a, first. A dish. Yeah, I've got Ooh. the trump card. It turns out. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, cool. <laughs> Go ahead, Lizzie. Is that there's um, uh, there's a dish called huevos uh, divorciados, like divorced <laughs> eggs, which is um, it's like uh, it's a Latin American dish. It's two eggs and ones with a red sauce and ones with a uh, ones with a green sauce. It's, but I feel like it's something with eggs and tomatoes. Yeah. So you have that. Am ab- I close? Yeah, you are absolutely 100 percent close. And, and indeed. Um, so yeah, after your Mexican divorce, you have the the huevos divorcia. Yes, uh, yes, yes. It. That is yeah, the, yeah. the weirdest eggs I've had, I cooked out of a medieval textbook. And ah. so one of them was a fried deviled egg that had weird sweet spices in it, mm. like raisins and cinnamon and saffron. Ooh. And it just tasted wrong to me because <laughs> I, yeah, it was like fruitcake flavors, but in a deviled egg. And then the other weird thing I cooked out of the same uh, cookbook was uh, egg yolks poached in rose syrup. And you just take an egg yolk and you drop it into this sugar syrup that you've put rose water in and it comes out and you rest it in some sugar and it's kind of a little bit tacky, a little bit toffee in its texture. And, you know, like it was fine, but I'm not. Um, I'm not going to make that for a dinner party. It sounds disgusting, actually. <laughs> I don't even like the, I know you and your father made tamago, tamagoyaki. I don't even like that because the mirin makes it sweet and I don't like that. But anyway, yeah, you know, Chris, yeah. Chris, what about you? I mean, are there particular egg dishes that you either favor or marvel at in, in, in yeah. the other kind of way? And this one goes to what you guys were saying about the eggshell being porous. So um, back when we were serving truffles quite frequently, and those are the two, the uh, the uh, mushrooms that grow underground that have that pungent aroma. If you take your truffles as you're storing them and you store them with a few eggs in a container or like a glass jar or a plastic container, the truffle aroma and flavor will seep into the egg egg. And that is probably one of the most amazing egg dishes I've ever had. And then you just very softly scramble those eggs with just some fresh chives. And that probably to date is one of the top four dishes I've had in my life. Wow. Although let me bounce this off the two of you. This could be my Hibernian soul talking. I also feel like among the perfect combinations in the world, among the five perfect combinations of food in the world, and I don't even know what the other four are, eggs and potatoes. There's some way in which like Uh, any kind of- Oh my gosh, love them. Go ahead. You have the floor, Lizzie. Oh, okay. I I mean, my favorite way to have eggs and potatoes is in a Spanish tortilla. You slice a bunch of potatoes thinly and you like Mm -hmm. fry them gently in (laughs) olive oil. And then you drain them and then you put in some beaten eggs and bake it and flip it. 
And it's it's good warm, it's good cold, it's good hot. And yeah. most of all, it's a great vehicle for um, garlic mayo. Mm. Ioli. Yeah. Yes. That's how I look. How do you like yours, Chris? Yeah, no, a very similar. Actually, a friend, a Spanish friend of mine just gave me a recipe for something very similar. And it sounded very strange to me. So I had to immediately try it. It's that same Spanish tortilla that you're talking about, except he whipped in a drained can of tuna. Oh, you know, and I've, again, I've made that once. Have you, right. And it was yeah. It was so good. I made it in the kitchen here at work and I was going to lay in or let it cool down a little bit. And by the time I got back to it, three quarters of it was already eaten by the kitchen staff. And again, just a strange combination because tuna fish, eggs and potatoes, maybe to me didn't sound good in my head. But man, when we came out of the pan, it was good. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of three of the ingredients in a salad niçoise, like the tuna, the egg and the Mm -hmm. potato. Yep. That's my other favorite egg and potato experience. Yeah, I, I uh, tonight I am, what I'm going to make actually is something called uh, I think it's called shakshuka. It's a North oh, Afri- sure. it's Native a sauce. North African dish. Yeah, you know, yeah. explain explain what it is, Chris, so I don't have to. Yeah, that's a great one, and we make that often for breakfast. And that is just a uh, a, a African spiced tomato sauce. So it has a lot of like uh, like cumin and coriander and spices like that in the tomato sauce. And you basically softly poach the egg inside that tomato sauce. Um, what I usually do is I get the tomato sauce in a shallow pan. And then once it simmers down and thickens a little bit, I make little holes in the tomato sauce. And then I crack the eggs into those holes, put a lid on the pan and let it softly cook like that. And I'm telling you, unbelievable flavor. Yeah, Altalengi has uh, a good recipe in his Plenty book, um, and yeah, so it's it's a North African dish initially. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody, and I, I think Lizzie Uova in Purgatorio, eggs in Purgatorio, <laughs> uh, that that's basically the Italian version of that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's the that kind of thing is great for a crowd at brunch because you can make the tomato sauce ahead of time mm-hmm. and then just warm it back up and slip the eggs in, and it seems like you've been cooking all morning. So, Lizzie, I know you have a question to ask Chris about brunch in in restaurants and what it's like to work that shift. Go ahead. So, Chris, I heard a rumor that the brunch shift is the worst shift to have. No question. At a restaurant. And why why is that? And we to the point where it was one of our main reasons to not open on Sunday just so we would not have to deal with brunch on Sunday morning. It is mostly because, and I know this is going to sound a little crazy, nothing to, well, maybe something to do with the eggs a little bit. Most of line cooks, the people cooking brunch, are very young, right? Say 20-ish. And (laughs) on Saturday night when they're working, as soon as they get out of work, unlike me, I go home and go to bed. They go out and party and have fun on a Saturday night bars in Connecticut are open till two in the morning on Saturday. So they're out till two, three in the morning. And then the brunch shift starts. It's the earliest shift of a restaurant. And all of a sudden you have to be back at work and you're cooking eggs. So I guess the hangover and the egg don't really go together. Yeah. Was that, was that what you thought, Lizzie? Or did you have a different theory? No, that's not what I thought, that's but it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Oh. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Raw eggs. And after a night of drinking is yeah. not a good combination. Well, I think that's, that's like a traditional hangover cure though. Like yeah. uh, of like a raw egg yolk, a prairie oyster. There you go. Right. I think you don't do that anymore too. I used to, when I was a teenager, I'd go to friendlies, which is a, you know, sort of a, you know, 
fast casual place before that term existed. And I'd ask for a raw egg in my milkshake. And even then, yeah. there were sort of uncomfortable stares. But I think you don't do it anymore because of, I don't know, fears yeah. about salmonella or something. Yeah. And I think, is that why the soft boiled egg went away? I don't know about you guys, but we had our own little fancy cup to put our, as children, oh. to put our. You know, I, I think it even had our names written on them, you know, scribed on them. And, you know, I had mine that it's good. And, and my mom would soft boil the eggs for breakfast. And then we'd each go to the cupboard and grab our own egg cup. And then you'd crack the egg, top of the egg off and put your salt and pepper in there. Is that even done anymore? You can't even mention soft boiled eggs in front of Lizzie Stark right now because I only have a minute worth of time <laughs> left here. And this is a really big conversation for Lizzie. Uh, but, they but, still have them in Great Britain where uh, yes. toast and soldiers and dippy eggs is an honored yes. an yes. honored kid breakfast yeah <laughs> I, I don't know i mean I, I i there's a lot of ceremony involved you know like tapping yeah. the side of it and yes. yeah, you get the cup and lizzie i think you grew up with some kind of special spoon that you use oh yeah yes. tiny little golden spoon <laughs> yes. and you slurp it out yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I don't know. It might be too much. <laughs> totally. Trouble. Of course, I've never made toad in the hole either. Uh, I, mean, I know that's like a big thing another too. great one. Yeah, another great one. Yeah. All right, yeah. we're gonna have to pause here. It's great to hear the voice of Chris Prosperi, my very good friend, uh, here, and it's been so much fun to visit with Lizzie Stark. We are just scratching the surface, if you can say that about an egg, uh, of her incredible book, "Egg: A Dozen Overtures" by Lizzie Stark. Get it? There's so much in it. Uh, and thanks for listening to this part. Yes. <laughs> and we are now going to have a conversation. Uh, about something that Lizzie mentioned um, when we come back for the break. Uh, something that Lizzie mentioned, which is that, yes, another thing that happens with eggs sometimes uh, is that they are tossed. Uh, they are thrown. They are thrown at people with the idea of smacking them and dripping down them. And why would that be? Why would they have picked that? the Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believed. Back to the show. So time to say some thank yous. I'm not even completely sure I know everybody that I should thank. I know I should thank Dylan Rays and Kat Pastor, both technical producers on this show. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, the legend, uh, senior producer emeritus of The Colin McEnroe Show, came back to produce this show about eggs. And our current producer, Lily Tyson, senior producer Lily Tyson, also uh, did some very important things with this. I don't even know what they are. I just It's just kind of priced in the, to my life that she did. All right. So uh, bring, we're bringing back to the show somebody we've enjoyed very much as a guest in the past, John Portman, who I believe was on our, uh, our Schadenfreude show, uh, author of When Bad Things Happen to Other People. Uh, he taught moral philosophy and ethics at the University of Virginia for several decades. Uh, and he's with us now to talk about eggs. So Actually, John, let me see if I can set this up uh, in a way that will intrigue you, possibly. So uh, I was working on a profile, this is decades ago, uh, about a guy named George Michael Ivica, who was kind of a leader in the John F. Kennedy kind of conspiracy assassination movement um, and, and really sort of believed that this foundational horrible thing had happened in a way that had never been satisfactorily explained. 
But he, he was mainly a professor of poetry and literature. So I decided I would go watch him teach a poetry class. And he just gave this amazing lecture. But he talked about how every culture, every civilization has this foundational myth in which paradise is lost, that perfection exists and something goes wrong. And he, he said, something goes wrong. The egg is cracked. And we spend the rest of existence using poetry and song and prose and dance to try to heal that crack. And I thought, John, that's probably a pretty good place for us to start right <laughs> right now. That yes. idea of the perfection of the egg. The egg is a symbol, an exterior s- symbol of perfection. I mean, there's something amazing about the shape of it, small enough to come out of a hole in an animal, uh, big enough to hold uh, an embryo. Um, an egg is an amazing thing. But then there's all this messy stuff inside, right? Yes. And the egg is also, we know, um, the source of life. I mean, if it's fertilized and conditions are right, so... Um, the egg is pregnant, if you will, with all sorts of philosophical significance. Right. There's probably a reason why Humpty Dumpty is an egg, right? It doesn't say that in the verse, but he is invariably depicted as an egg. Some people say it's because of Lewis Carroll. But there's that idea, right, that it's a thing that if you crack, you can't you, – there's no way that you can reassemble this thing. The messiness is going to come out. Right. And this professor's particular theory, if I, if I may, dovetails with – a theory propounded by William James, who at Harvard uh, invented the field of psychology of religion about 125 years ago. And your professor uh, leans into the importance of poetry and narrative in constructing a sense of well-being, safety, security, human security in the world. And uh, that's just what William James did as well. So in a slightly different way, William James said, Religious people, uh, scholars, think that religion is all about texts. Uh, The Quran in Islam, the Torah in Judaism, um, the Bible in Christianity. And William James argued that, in fact, these texts are important to maybe 2% of practicing religious people in in the West. That what religions really do is help people manage their emotions help them feel secure, help them feel grounded, help them feel hopeful about the future. Right. So, you know, the outside of an egg, an intact egg is maybe kind of suggestive of something, something maybe divine or divine purpose. But let's go back to that inside. The inside is messy and it's connected to a whole bunch of things that we are considerably less comfortable with and regard as considerably less pristine. It's you know, it's implicitly menstrual and amniotic, and it's just all of the stuff that is the stuff of life, but not in a way that we're super at ease with. Yes, I think that's right. Think of a well-scrubbed, well-dressed person. Inside her or his body is a lot of messiness, a lot of blood, organs. Think about public reaction sometimes to women who nurse in public. Um, there's this view that fluids are meant to stay inside in their place, and when they come out, they're very messy and they frequently frighten people or, or anger them. So, yes, I think you're onto something. It, the messiness, I think, is absolutely key to how we're going to interpret egging, what it means and why it makes people very uneasy, um, but frequently not too uneasy. I mean, as opposed to, I, I don't know, a paintball or a spitball or a snowball or rotten vegetables or a pie in the face. The egg is perfect in, in, in a couple of different ways um, because it's usually not 
too severe. Um, but of course, we know that it it can, if it say for example hits you in the eye, it can actually be, it can be severe. Yes, I may have buried the lead. John is here mainly to talk about egging and why we why we would use that particular thing. I think this is a Betsy Kaplan inspiration. And yes, I mean probably the closest thing to it. So close to it, John, that it has given its name or it has, its name has been used for the most pervasive mode of reviewing culture. Rotten Tomatoes is where you go to find out whether the movie's good or not because Rotten Tomatoes are what you throw. But meanwhile, the egg, the egg is interesting too. When you throw an egg at somebody or even at a building or a statue or something, because it's aerodynamic when it's intact, right? There's a way in which Right. You know, air will air will pour over it uh, in a satisfying way, making it a more effective missile. But then it has this payload. The payload, this cracked egg, could be gushing out just about anything, as, as we keep saying. Yeah, amniotic menstrual, but it also could be sort of gastric fluids too. It's just all of the things about life that we're so eager to avoid when we're creating a comfortable reality. Exactly, and it's. It's that messiness, it's that fear that it, it might happen to us that makes people very, very uneasy. If you see it happen to, say, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger or um, a controversial politician, you may feel relief, but you may feel your relief that it hasn't happened to you, but also a little joy that someone who needs to be taken down a peg or taught a lesson has done so in a relatively painless way. Again, if it hits you in the eye, it's very bad. If it's a rotten egg, it'll it'll stink. But um, normally the egg will wash off pretty quickly. It's not red like the rotten tomato. Usually it is just a little messy, but not too messy. And that's why some people will allow themselves to, to laugh and jeer. It's sort of like seeing someone um, slip on a banana peel. You're aware that there's a possibility for injury, but the possibility is pretty slight. Yeah, we need to do a whole show about bananas probably now that you mentioned that. But so one of the things that's influencing your thinking about this is a book by Mary Douglas called Purity and Danger, right? This is all about that wall, that wall that is is supposedly, putatively impervious uh, between what and what, John? Well, we have a saying, as you know, in, in the English language, cleanliness is next to godliness, and what Mary Douglas argued was that the point of religions is to tell us where crucial boundaries lie with, for example, food and food preparation, with, for example, uh, bodily fluids, uh, menstrual blood, semen, what have you, even spit. The crucial role that religions serve is to enforce this wall between the sacred and the profane, the, the good, the pure, and the bad. That's why people find, she argued, religion is very useful because they need a way to justify their sort of gut instincts that when, for example, someone puts their bodily fluids where they shouldn't go, or when a person uh, vomits on him or herself or becomes incontinent suddenly, that the revulsion that people feel has a kind of justification and that this justification comes from very old religious ideals. So, and in a way... It's the existence of that kind of uh, of dichotomy, and it's the creation of that pseudo pristine world that's that's clean and supposedly pure that 
creates the temptation and the dramatic effect uh, of something like throwing an egg, right? There's no point in throwing an egg at Sir Toby Belch or at Iggy Pop or, I mean, you know, they're, they're already exactly. in the, they're in the mess with you, you know? Exactly. You need to throw the, the, meg, the, the egg at the guy in the white tuxedo jacket uh, or the person in austere religious robes, right? That's what makes the statement? Exactly. So, I mean, if you went to a wrestling match, you wouldn't throw an egg there probably because these guys are already sweaty and uh, and dirty anyway. So yes, Rihanna, any woman in a in a beautiful evening gown or a man in a tux, uh, maybe white tie, they present on TV for the audience as pure, as done. The hair, the skin on the face, the clothes, everything is good, pure as it should be. And then the egg lands somewhere and messes everything up. And that can be deeply unsettling. It can be very frightening. Everyone waits to see how well, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger or the controversial politician respond. How will other people now treat this person now that they have been, if you will, sullied? I mean, in my view, we could we could argue this. There are worse things you could you could throw than an egg. I mean, you mentioned the rotten tomato, um, any rotten vegetable, probably because there's a lot more color involved. But the beauty of the egg is that in, in a very simple way, the same work has been done. That's to say this boundary has been troubled and people are suddenly alert that there's danger. We're not exactly sure what's coming next, but we know that that fluid, that egg, is where it should not be and it should be removed quickly. And then we need a community to interpret what happened and to explain why it's unlikely to happen again so people can go on living their lives confidently, securely. Yes, and we it even makes its way into the language. I don't know how much people use this idiom anymore, but there's the idea of to have egg on yes. one's face uh, is to have experienced a, a, a shaming and an embarrassment. So I guess my last question or my last statement that I'll have you respond to, because I, I know it's there in your work and in your thinking, is – Perhaps the only defense is laughter, right? I mean, because the other target of the egg is self-seriousness. The other target of the egg is, in fact, the person who holds himself or herself into high esteem. The person who can laugh at something as absurd as an egging is almost impervious to the egging? Yes. So the person who is egged suddenly has power. Everyone will watch to see how she or he responds. And if the person brushes it off with laughter, then the audience, the onlookers, everyone on the internet or TV or Instagram sighs relief because this small hill will not become a mountain. Some people, um, particularly in the heat of the moment, uh, lack a sense of humor, and that's pretty understandable in my view. And they will become enraged and they will escalate the situation. And that's something that I think everybody's aware of as well particularly now in America with all of the gun violence, we know that for reasons that will afterwards strike us as pretty minor, people can become enraged and they can become violent. And so that's, again, part of the messiness here. We don't know how the the victim, if you will, will respond to the egg, whether the victim will try to downplay it or make this the focus of some sort of attack. So there is dramatic tension there. And the, the sort of usefulness of the religion is that it can explain what happened 
and can remind everyone that this is not to happen and it should not happen again and put them at ease. All right, but you can't get the uh, egg contents back into the egg. Something, it's no, like, you can't it's do like, that. It's like the toothpaste yeah. in the tube and the Humpty Dumpty exactly. in the You can send the tux to the cleaners, but you can't get the egg back in the egg, no. And on that lofty thought, we have to say goodbye uh, to our audience today, but it's been great to end with one of our favorite philosophers, John Portman. You might enjoy his book, When Bad Things Happen to Other People. Uh, we're going to say farewell, but thank you very much for listening, and uh, may your day be either scrambled or over easy. <laughs>